Welcome to Ventricles, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza. This episode is part of a series about time, including timekeeping and time travel. In today's episode, I sit down with Ahmed Ragab, a professor at Harvard Divinity School and the director of the Science, Religion, and Culture program, to speak about two stories of science fiction, both about Muslim women. Many people love science fiction for the way it opens our minds to other ways of being. Sometimes that radical imagination can even shape the reality we try to build in the present. But not all science fiction or fantasy offers alternatives. Sometimes fiction about the future fixes our perspective and makes our current reality with all its problems seem inevitable. What does it mean when authors imagine that the choices available to people in the future will be more or less the same as those available to us now? In 2015, uh, Hassan Qasim, who is uh, an Iraqi novelist, uh, edited this collection, Iraq Plus 100. Um, the, the prompt that he gave to the story writers, to the contributors to the collection, is to imagine Iraq 100 years after the uh, 2003 invasion. And the, one of the interesting or probably surprising things that one encounters as you read through the different stories in the collection is that there's just no Iraq anymore. In almost all of the stories, Iraq, which is only present, is essentially only present in the cover of the story. And after that, it's only a relic of the past, something that ceased to exist. Mm. And in a way for me, it was a, it's, it's an interesting exercise in thinking about a future of a place where those exercise doing or performing this exercise end up believing that this place just doesn't have any future. The first story of this uh, collection is called Kahramana, and it is named after the uh, protagonist. The protagonist is a woman. Uh, now, Iraq in this particular story is divided into a number of uh, polities. We see that one of them looks like is called the an Islamic Imara or uh, principality, is essentially um, a projection of ISIS into the future. Another piece is controlled by uh, the Nations United League. Uh, which is a kind of an alliance sort of uh, place that's still occupied. Would that be something like the UN today? Exactly. It is portrayed as essentially a 100-year projection of the UN. And, well, first the leader of this Islamic State thing is infertile, and there is a kind of crisis of succession that is anticipated, and Kahramana is one of the, uh, of the uh, brides of the new leader. Kahramana is able to escape, and she ends up in a refugee camp in the uh, NUL, or the Nations United League-controlled area. Uh, the crisis of authority here is because the leadership of this Imara, the kind of future ISIS state, has to be patrilineal exactly. from father to son. Exactly. Okay. He just doesn't have any children at all. Mm -hmm. So um, Kahramana is a very uh, young and beautiful woman, and her beauty is... Uh, portrayed as a, a kind of a sign, a, if you will, a morphological sign of future fertility. Um, and Kahramana's uh, beauty, in a way, plays a significant role in her fate and, and her career afterwards, because she ends in a refugee camp, and she's immediately seen 
or understood as a woman who looks very white. Mm -hmm. She has a very fair skin. Uh, she has uh, blue eyes. She has very small features. And she's immediately identified as somebody who looks white. And precisely because of how she looks, she starts this whole media storm that ends with her photos and billboards, that ends with the attention of um, Western media, basically, um, that their attention and investment in this war one more time. And she becomes a figure that is supposed to be rescued from this particular region. So this is all happening within not only the UN future UN ruled state that's next to the Imara, but also in other parts of the kind of like the West now. Exactly, exactly. So her photos are everywhere. People are thinking about her. And the uh, way that the uh, future UN is ruling this particular part of Iraq comes under some sort of scrutiny precisely because of how she looks. And we are reminded that she's by no means the only refugee. There are hundreds, if not thousands of them. They are routinely refused asylum and sent back. Uh, only very few get to be actual refugees and are not sent back. And yet she is able to, or she is used in a way, um, to become an icon of these refugees and of this war, precisely of how she looks. Mm. And, and of course, this is reminiscent of uh, Sharbat Gul, the Afghan girl, the Afghan girl uh, who was photographed by a National Geographic photographer and then afterwards was uh, recovered again and um, now uh, shown as an older woman and where uh, the most attractive thing about her is that she had uh, green eyes mm -hmm. and that she her eyes looked very white and actually as I was doing research on this um, particular topic I tried to see the internet community and what they are doing with Sharbat Gul and if uh, when her photo reemerged, and uh, there are a number of uh, good doers who attempted to Photoshop her uh, picture to remove any blemishes and to make her a little whiter. And um, they are actually saying that this would make her look as beautiful as she used to be when she was a child. So, I'm um, sorry, what was the name of the author of um, Kahraman? Uh, Anut. Anut. So, do you think that Anut was, um, was conscientiously echoing this this real life story of Sharbat Gold. I think so. I think the similarities are pretty um, are pretty clear in the idea that of how Sharbat Gold's photo ends up also in on posters. She becomes the um, sort of the poster child, literally so, of the Afghan War, and she becomes one of the reasons why people want to be invested in quote unquote rescuing Afghanistan. And then again, you know, we are. Um, the Washington Post reported how um, President Trump was shown a photo from the 1970s of Afghan women with mini skirts and uh, was told that Afghanistan used to be quote unquote modern before and that allowed or allowed him to be convinced of investing more in the war effort in Afghanistan. And in all three stories, um, the potential future of the colony, if you will, is, is literally drawn over the bodies of women. Mm -hmm. and over how these seemingly fragile, deprived of agency bodies need to be understood and rescued by colonialism. And, and I think it's really significant here, also these are very young women or girls too, in relation to investment in the future, this potentiality that they carry with them as a site of investment. Um, it, it adds to their lack of agency, of course, as you're pointing out, but the fact that they're not yet old and blemished women. That's Gilly Vidan a PhD student who spoke to us about money earlier this season.
Right, and that's the idea that there is this kind of hope for the future. And in a way, the story of Kahramana follows this particular idea. The beginning of the story, Kahramana herself has some hope. Um, and the beginning, also the idea that her um, that her appearance came to, came to uh, condition this sort of um, positive response gives her hope that she could be actually given or granted asylum. But then ultimately, um, Kahramana proves to be not wide enough. Uh, when she speaks, and she she speaks very little, and she's very soft-spoken, um, she starts to reveal herself as just another essentially Muslim brown woman. And her story gets to be doubted. Her uh, looks now are sites of suspicion as opposed to uh, reasons for sympathy. Uh, her story of escaping the Imara as opposed to be an evidence of heroism becomes possibly a sign of her being a spy. And ultimately the story ends with the end of her potential future that she is returned one more time. She's denied asylum and we are assumed, we, we are left with the idea that maybe she'll escape again, maybe not, but ultimately her future doesn't count and doesn't matter because after all, um, she doesn't really have any productive future. So Anut is uh, giving the reader license to imagine a future but is making clear that it's not bright or it's not automatically bright because her goal in, in willing an escape was thwarted by her not being able to I guess assimilate. I, I think it that's that's correct, but I think it might be also, or in my in my view, I think what Anud is also trying to present is that her future, much like the future of all of these refugees, is essentially projected on a loop. Her story keeps repeating over and over and over again, and while she hopes for a kind of a linear future that projects her forward, she's always this linearity is always thwarted and she was always sent back on the same loop to go back through to repeat the story over and over again in a way that just never ends but ultimately the the idea is this the fact that her story never ends that it is on a loop doesn't matter for anybody in the un uh, future un controlled uh, entity ultimately that actually doesn't matter she doesn't matter and nobody else of these refugees none of them matters yeah, it's startling that the author is imagining the discourses. I mean, these are familiar discourses to us here about refugees today uh, who seek asylum in Europe and the U.S. And that same discourse existing 100 years in the future and being just as racialized uh, as it is today. That's really startling. Right. And I, I think when I think about Kahramana, I'm thinking also about a, a story of, of almost another refugee. And this time story produced in here in the West, in the United States. And this comes from the Marvel's universe. So um, for people who are familiar with the Marvel's universe, particularly the mutant X-Men, in the new generation, one character is called Dust. Her real name is Soraya Qadr. She is a woman from Afghanistan. Her power is to transform into a dust storm. And her major, um, or sort of the, the identifying feature, visually speaking, is the fact that she's wearing uh, a niqab, a black niqab. And of course, the black niqab is uh, first mentioned in the in a number of, of comics as a burqa, and then later on, it is understood or sort of uh, one of the uh, characters say, well, it's actually called a niqab, not a burqa. Um, Dust is rescued by Wolverine, and uh, she's when she's rescued, she she's being attacked by slavers. 
uh, Afghani slavers. Uh, we are given the impression that they might be connected to the Taliban. And she will return back again to fight the Taliban over and over again. Uh, she goes back to the Xavier Academy, uh, or she goes to the Xavier Academy, and she's taken in, protected presumably there, and she's thought to become a member of the mutant X-Men. And the her her niqab becomes uh, a question that she keeps, uh, she's always asked about. Uh, she always needs to justify and explain. And at the same time, the niqab is something that appears only to the other characters, but not to us. Ultimately, the niqab is not really for real, because we follow Suraya inside her living quarters, and we see her without the niqab. And so she's not hidden from our eyes. Her modesty is, I would say, a form of drag. Um, it interrupts a particular mode of communication, but at the same time, it is always portrayed and presented as fake and artificial, as something that doesn't, that is not real, because ultimately we, the readers, get to peek and see. So dr when you say drag, can you explain that more? How is the niqab drag for her in this universe? So on one hand, in its being a drag, it's an exaggeration of her Muslim identity in making it extremely visible, extremely um, um, sort of noticeable. It cannot be missed. And this is unlike a number of other Muslim characters that we only uh, know, like Sinclair, for instance, other people in the Marvel's universe, who do not dress in a sort Muslim drag, to use Jasper uh, Poir's um, word, and therefore are only identified when they self-identify. Uh, but she is wearing the niqab all the time, and therefore her Muslim identity is exaggerated. At the same time, it is presented as artificial, superfluous, and fake, because ultimately she's wearing this She's not wearing this for us, the readers. She, we can see her without the niqab. She's only wearing it to these people around her. And therefore, we, the readers, don't fully, don't fully believe the identity that the niqab is supposed to project. Mm. Uh, we understand it always as an exaggerated marker that is meant to mark difference, but doesn't necessarily, or for real, if you will, mark a form of identity that should be respected. So that's why it's similar to a performance. Exactly, yeah, and an exaggerated performance of that. And at the same time, her entire role or a lot of the conversations that she goes through is one where she keeps talking about how she portrays her identity as a Muslim, uh, how she tries to think, um, you know, how she hates, to, hates violence. She keeps fighting the Taliban over and over again. Um, she sort of tries to inject a form of sexual morality among the other mutant X-Men, her, her comrades and colleagues, and in a way portray an image of what passes as a good Muslim. Mm -hmm. uh, a Muslim who is visible, clear, can be seen and surveyed at times, but at the same time who is willing to participate in the larger projects of the mutant X-Men or of the future, and who's also willing to fight the bad Muslims on behalf of everybody else. Um, and ultimately, um, in, in a, a very interesting um, moment, she talks to, I think, Colonel Pierce, um, and she tells him that she understands, as a mutant Muslim, she understands bigotry. And she knows that he's a bigot, but she also knows that his bigotry will only be fueled by bad examples, whether bad examples of mutants or bad examples of Muslims. And therefore she decides, and, and she claims, that she will not allow him to get these bad examples from her. 
Mm. And as such, I would argue that Dust or Suraya Qadr presents the ultimate um, mode of resistance by conformity. Mm -hmm. She's resisting bigotry, but precisely by conforming to the discourse of surveillance. She's not rejecting surveillance. She's trying to make surveillance superfluous by just having nothing to hide, by becoming the real good Muslim, which is, again, the answer that is projected through this particular narrative of the future of Muslims, good surveyed subjects that resist this bigotry only by being truly good Muslims. And in, in, in essence, they would welcome surveillance because it will only prove that we're good. I'm interested in how do you see then uh, Suraya's or Dust's agency when we talked in the earlier uh, story about Karamana, about women being denied agency by the colonial regime and, and um, imaginary of investment in a war um, and in the colony. Is Dust offered more agency because she is on par with the other X-Men? She's a superhero? So I think in Kahramana, but also throughout the collection of Iraq Plus 100, almost all of the protagonists decide to take um, to take a step out of the exercise of futurity. So the entire collection is interestingly premised on the idea of imagining Iraq, Iraq's future 100 years after colonization. And again, the first thing, Iraq itself disappears in the stories. But then the second thing is that all the characters intend to practice their agency by just deciding not to be part of a plan, of a future planned not by themselves. And in the process, they reveal the absurdity of this future forged within the colony or within a kind of descendants of the colony. The, the future forged in Zoraya's or Dust's story, on the other hand, is one of enthusiastic participation. She is, the, the future of Muslims projected on Dust in this particular case is one where they participate enthusiastically in this planned future. Because again, I mean, she, she makes some decisions, but ultimately the trajectories is mapped. She accepts the idea that uh, bigotry results in surveillance and she's not rejecting surveillance, but she's actually accepting surveillance in a way. And I think these two modes stand in contrast to one another. While on one hand, the um, projected good Muslim is a Muslim that needs to participate, to be a part of this, to agree to a particular game of your charity where you play a particular role and you continue to prove yourself as worthy and good over and over and over again. And you accept the stereotypes and identification and accept yourself as a category. Uh, this is presented, for instance, by Dust. On the other hand, the in the Iraq Plus 100, we see a different mode of resistance where the characters are simply disinterested in the grand narratives. They are unwilling to participate in grand narratives that are not drawn with their participation, and instead they focus on the mundane, the little, and the immediate. They are interested in their own little lives, and they are interested, and they are giving they're making an argument for the value of their own little lives. And therefore, they are essentially resisting by rejecting to participate, by abstaining from becoming part of a narrative that is drawn for them. I remember one of the examples that you gave was a story about someone who was interested in the history of this place, which was now, by this point, totally uninhabitable except for these bubbles owned by Chinese multinationals. So everyone within the bubbles had Chinese citizenship, and without was almost 
completely uninhabitable. And this person only cared about the history of this place because he was a video game designer. And so kind of what you said about the grand narrative of the history of this place was only interesting to him insofar as it was for amusement. Exactly. Belittling. And this is the story, The Gardens of of Babylon, and it is actually by Hassan Blasim, who is the editor himself. I see. And here again, you're right, it's the Iraq that we as readers, uh, and again, this is the this was written in Arabic, but all the stories were translated and never came in Arabic. So the readers, the English-speaking readers, who are interested in this history outside of the domes, the history of Iraq in 100 years from um, uh, from occupation, are just told no. This is not what we're going to say. This is not what we're interested in talking about. We're interested in talking about the little lives of the little people who may not seem interesting to you, but who are us. And therefore, the protagonist ends up, you know, he's he's even worried about or, or you know, anxious about the value of this entire exercise of writing historical video games or video games that are based on the history of this land. But again, here the person to whom this story is speaking to, the English-speaking reader, is being intentionally frustrated by being told, we're not interested in telling you the story that you came here trying to learn. We're interested in the stories that we are living. Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Ventricles about the difficulties of imagining a future radically different from the present and why some writers choose not to. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics we discussed, please check out the bibliography for this episode online at the Science, Religion, and Culture Program website, src.hds.harvard.edu. Tune in to the rest of our series about time, including episodes on the pulse, canoes in space, and more. A special thank you for this music to the Overseas Ensemble a collaboration between composer Paid Ganka and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan musicians who came together while working in Beirut 